This is Archive Atlanta, episode 92, Georgia Institute of Technology. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. Atlanta is full of incredible colleges and universities from the historic HBCUs of the West Side. We have Emory. Um, we have pretty much feels like all of downtown Atlanta into one big Georgia State campus. And I have a list of schools to cover under that section in my podcast notes. So this week, we are going to kick it off with the Georgia Institute of Technology. When did it open? why, what big names were involved, and we'll talk about football, of course, its well-known traditions, and a few of its iconic buildings and students. I've mentioned this throughout previous episodes, but when the Civil War ended, the South found itself behind the rest of the country. When the North was developing industrially, the South remained agrarian and reliant on slave labor. Because of that, cities in the North had more craftsmen apprenticeships as opposed to the system down here, which was skilled trades were performed by enslaved people. Post-war, you see this push by Atlanta leaders not only to portray the South in a new way, hence the New South Creed, but also to keep up with the North's progress. And one of the ways to do this was to fast-track industrial trade education. Industrialization was going to be the South's path to economic recovery, and it seemed like the future of Georgia Tech carried it on its proverbial shoulders. In 1882, a representative from Macon introduced a resolution into the Georgia General Assembly to form a committee to study the feasibility of a technical school, and the first group met in May of 1883. There were two schools of thought, pun intended, uh, shop culture and school culture. It was fairly self-explanatory. So one was the hands-on approach and the latter was the academic approach. And the committee visited two different schools to see these methods in action. Uh, they went to Worcester, Polytech, and Boston Tech, and Boston Tech would become MIT. So they decided shop culture would be the one. The hands-on approach, the trade-specific approach would be how the university was modeled. In 1883, Frank Rice, a member of the Legislative Committee, took a trip to Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, and he surveyed their technological schools and how they operated. He returns to Atlanta and he tells a reporter, quote, I have always been a friend of technical education, but I came back from this trip convinced that such a school in Georgia, established fairly and run on first-class principles, is an absolute necessity to the state, end quote. The kids he saw graduating from these northern schools were getting starting salaries of $5,000 a year, which today would be over $100,000. So within the year, a bill is prepared and presented to the General Assembly to create a technology school in Georgia. It wasn't exactly an easy sell. Uh, the bill would fail twice before being adopted in 1885. It was signed by Governor McDaniel, and the state appropriated $65,000 for this endeavor. Another committee was established, they loved committees, uh, to select a site and get the school started. So different cities wanted it, and places like Athens, Macon, and Gainesville were floated as options. The president of the University of Georgia believed that it should be in Athens, of course, and it should exist on the main UGA campus, kind of like a sub-school. And so when Atlanta was chosen, and Atlanta is chosen because um, there's a guy named Judge Hurd, he casts like the final vote for Atlanta. So when he did that, the students at UGA burned an effigy of Judge Hurd on campus. 
Now, I'm sure Atlanta was patting itself on the back, but it was most likely chosen because it offered the highest bid of land and money, $130,000 total. Money was raised by private wealthy citizens, including people like Samuel Inman, and then five acres of land uh, was purchased from Peter's Land Company. And I talked about him before, he has his own episode, but he owned most of Midtown Atlanta. So they purchased five acres from him for $10,000, but then Richard Peters actually donated four more acres two years later. Jacob Elsis, who was the owner of the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill, uh, was also an important contributor to tech. And he's one of the original Atlanta businessmen in the room that took $1,000 out of his wallet to say, I'm going to fund the initial cost for exploring the school. Elsis was originally planning on sending his son to school at MIT, but he pushed for a school like this in the South. And it's interesting to note that Although Jacob was so fundamental, he's not really mentioned uh, in the histories when you read about them. He was never asked to be on the committee or the board of directors of the university, and this is more than likely due to him being Jewish. On Friday, October 5th, 1888, the Georgia School of Technology opened for its first classes. And no, I didn't get the name wrong. This was the first official name of the university, although it was sometimes listed as the Georgia Institute of Technology in print here and there. And it was also nicknamed the Tech, uh, T-E-C-K, but pretty early on. So it was kind of funny to see these old articles when it was calling the Tech. The very first two structures on the campus were the shop building and the academic building, both designed by the architecture firm of Bruce and Morgan. The organizers of the school purposely put the least amount of money into buildings, and they instead preferred to buy the best equipment for the shop building. The shop building had metalworking and drawing rooms, offices, a machine and the wood shop, engine rooms, a blacksmith shop, and an iron and brass foundry. Although at university, the shops employed some skilled workers, and they paid them, um, but most of the labor was done by unpaid tech students. And yes, again, main purpose is education, but the shops ran like a small business and they would fulfill orders from all across Atlanta and even into other states. Jacob Elsis ordered a lot for his factory from the tech shops, um, as did the owners of the Exposition Cotton Mill, which was right next door. Sadly, this building would catch fire in 1892. And so although it was rebuilt in a different form, there was not enough money to replace the equipment of each individual shop. The commercial endeavor uh, that the school was doing ended at this point, but students did continue to learn the trades um, by working several hours a week in what was rebuilt. In 1968, the building was torn down and it no longer exists, but the space today is an open green space called Harrison Square. The academic building next to the shop held offices, lecture rooms, drawing rooms, the library, and the chapel. And it took a year to finish this building, which opened in 1888. When President Teddy Roosevelt visited the campus in 1905, he stood on these steps and addressed 500 students. And those steps are still here because that building today is formally called the Letty Pat Whitehead Evans Admin Building. I might have said that wrong, but most people call it informally Tech Tower. The school's first president, Isaac Hopkins, came from Emory University in Oxford, Georgia, and he served until 1896. He hired the first professor of mechanical engineering, John Saylor Kuhn, who is credited with merging the shop culture and the academic culture. So this is where it starts to change. So within a decade of Georgia Tech opening, um, it starts to skew more towards the academic model. 
The first class of the Georgia School of Technology had 84 students taught by 10 faculty members, and they sprawled over a few acres that were easily accessible by the Marietta and North Avenue streetcar lines. To enroll, you had to be a minimum of 16 years old, take an entrance exam, and if you were from out of state, pay the $150 per year tuition. In-state students were free. There were, however, no dorms, and residence halls and off-campus housing cost anywhere from $12 to $20 a month. Every enrolled student was required to attend weekly chapel services on campus in Tech Tower and a weekly service at the religious denomination of your choice. At the first graduation in June of 1890, the two lone graduates, G.G. Crawford and H.L. Smith, would receive their diplomas. And the school touted that next graduation, we're going to have nine students. The one after that, we're going to have 30. So a clear sign of success. They wanted everybody to know they were growing. By the time the second class graduated, they had eight young men. And these were sons of the big Atlanta names. There was Julius DeGive, um, whose dad operated the opera house, and William Glenn, whose father was a reverend and early Inman Park resident. And Glenn was described in this graduation write-up not only as the youngest in his class, but also considered the most handsome. Now, I get really nervous when I talk about Southern college football, as I'm neither a football fan nor a Southerner. But I have only been to one ever college football game in my life. It was actually Georgia Tech versus Virginia Tech. The school's first football team formed in 1892, and it was coached by physics professor Ernest West and Leonard Wood, who was a lieutenant and army surgeon from Fort McPherson. So you may be wondering, why is a guy from Fort McPherson coaching college football? And the story is that the team started out as a loosely organized group of students. Uh, They played their first game against Macon. And in their three-game first season, they lost every single one. So Wood offered to volunteer to coach the team. And the following year, in 1893, was the first time that Tech played UGA, their famed rival. And I was today years old when I learned that this rivalry has a name and a Wikipedia page. So it's called Clean Old Fashioned Hate. I'm sure everybody knows this and everyone's laughing at me, but I did not know that rivalries had names. Georgia Tech's team wasn't really good. So even though they beat UGA and they had won a few things, uh, it wasn't until their new full-time coach, John Heisman, was hired in 1904 that they would really take off. And so this is the 16-year career. He led the team to four national championships. And then the famous Bobby Dodd joined as assistant coach in 1930. Uh, And he would be assistant coach for 14 years, I think it was. And he moved to head coach in 1945. Tech's second president, Lyman Hall, was elected in 1896, and he was the one that really expanded the school programs and buildings. He initiated the schools of electrical and civil engineering um, in his first year, and he opened the first dormitories. My favorite story about these dorms is that Tech students made every piece of furniture inside these dorm rooms except for the chairs. I don't know. I don't know if chairs are hard, but I just found that really interesting. And the cost to board was $10 for a two-man room. And Jimmy Carter is said to have lived in the dorms when he was a student in 1942. Lyman is also credited with soliciting Andrew Carnegie's foundation to fund their library. So I talked about this in detail in episode 48, but Atlanta had several Carnegie libraries, and two were on university campuses. One was at Atlanta University, built in 1904, and the one at Georgia Tech was built in 1906 with a $20,000 gift from Carnegie. 
And the exciting part is that text still stands today. So Atlanta University does not, but the Carnegie Library on campus is there. And Mr. Carnegie himself was at the Cornerstone Lang ceremony. And this brings me to the campus buildings. And while the school was funded by an appropriation from the legislator every year, that was never enough. And private donations were a necessity. Almost all of the building names come from people who gave lots of money from them, <laughs> like the French building, the Swan buildings. Um, and then a lot of them were named after people, so probably later on named after a former president or something. Uh, many of the earliest structures on campus were designed by W.T. Downing, who's a very prolific architect in Atlanta, and they have been separately listed on the National Register for Historic Places. There is no way for me to cover every single building while doing them justice without this having to be a two-hour episode. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes. There is a over 300-page historic preservation report uh, that Georgia Tech completed, and it has a really wonderful chart with all the buildings, pictures, what their names are, and what year they were built, and significance. So just put aside a few hours for yourself when you get into that. In 1904, the school floated the idea of moving to Piedmont Park and even asked the legislator for money to purchase the old exposition grounds. So in theory, in theory, this was a perfect idea. The current school was surrounded by residential streets and main roads. And I don't think leaders thought far enough in advance on how to expand in this urban environment. So the park had 200 acres. It had a track that could be used for athletics. It was, you know, the perfect place. I don't know what happened to this idea because it was mentioned a few times in the paper, and then it just died off. But just to me, it's another funny thing to think about when you're at Piedmont Park. You know, this could be Georgia Tech's campus. World War I impacted the Georgia School of Technology in big ways. The school received funding from the federal government. It was a ground flight training school for the Army Air Corps, and they provided classes for technical training. In 1917, 100 members of the senior class were ready to place themselves in the engineering corps. Because most young men were enrolling to fight in the war efforts, Tech allowed women to enroll in the School of Commerce, which was a night school. Classes were held in the Walton Building on campus, and this was kind of the first time women were sort of allowed to enroll, but we'll get to that soon. Even the school's president at the time, Matheson, he took a leave of absence to serve in the war effort, so enrollment was sort of down while people were away. Um, In 1918, the graduating class only had 24 of 70 men who were even present because, again, they were enlisted. Post-war, however, enrollment booms, and it more than doubles from 1916 to 1919. The 1920s were led by University President in Britain. Tech won the Rose Bowl in 1928, and it used the prize money to buy additional 10 acres and expand the campus. The Flying Fliver races began in 1929-1930, um, which was an auto race from Atlanta to Athens. And while that sounds just about as dangerous as it was, uh, they knew this. They didn't want anybody to get hurt, so they switched it to a parade. And by 1932, it was called the Rambling Wreck Parade. So today, I'm sure you know the Rambling Wreck is a actual 1934 Model A, but it's the school's mascot, which I think is really unique. 
In the 1930s, Techwood Homes was constructed on land adjacent to Georgia Tech. And I covered this in detail in episode 64, which was about housing projects, because Techwood was the nation's first public housing project. And it was developed on land that was considered a slum. And closeness of this slum caused a lot of stress for Tech's presidents and board of directors. And funny enough, I found something in the newspaper um, that I missed when I was researching that first episode. But it's an idea from 1917 that recommends taking this quote-unquote undesirable area just across from North Avenue behind the YMCA building and transforming it into a park. At the time, it was used as an unofficial dumping ground with scattered ramshackle housing all over several acres. Today, this area is residential, mainly apartments, and there's just one building left from the former Techwood Homes. In the 1940s, school president Van Leer added 51 acres, and in 1948, the name was officially changed to its current moniker, the Georgia Institute of Technology. Enrollment doubled from 1944 to 1948, and that was all because of the GI Bill, which made college education free for returning World War II veterans. We've talked about how the GI Bill was rooted in Jim Crow and unfairly discriminated against Black people and mortgages, but the education portion also had issues. Most white Southern universities refused entry to Black students, and HBCUs, while they existed, were generally strapped for resources, and then most did not offer master's or doctorate programs. By 1946, only one-fifth of the 10,000 Black applicants received their educational GI benefits. None of these students were at Georgia Tech because the school's first black students did not enroll until 1961. Ralph Long, Lawrence Williams, and Ford Green uneventfully enrolled at Georgia Tech, which was very different from months of protests that made that happen at UGA. What's really cool, though, is that Tech is installing, if they have not yet, a sculpture of these three men. They call it the Three Pioneers. And they also have another sculpture going up that's going to honor the first Black man to graduate, who is named Ronald Yancey. In 1952, the Board of Regents voted 7-5 to to allow female students to enroll. And the first two were Elizabeth Herndon and Barbara Diane Michael from Houston, Texas. Elizabeth was living in Morningside with her nine-year-old son when she found out her husband had been killed overseas in 1944. So when Tech announced they were going co-ed about not even 10 years later, she immediately applied for an industrial engineering major. In her first chemistry class, she sat alphabetically next to Albert Herndon, since they shared the last name, and a year later they were married. And I think that's the cutest story ever. Um, She ended up not being able to graduate, but uh, went on to teach physics and another class at, like, I think the Lovett School or something. But yeah, she just had a great career. The campus continued to grow, adding 128 more acres in the 60s. In 1996, it served as the Olympic Village um, during the Olympics, of course. But for one month in the summer, it had a population of 30,000 people on campus every day. And so part of this transformation was when the former Techwood Homes buildings were demolished. Um, The area was filled with housing and dorms. And then in 2000, the campus expanded across the downtown connector into Midtown Atlanta. So today, the Georgia Institute of Technology has 190 buildings on about 450 acres. So there you have it, the story of Georgia Tech from an idea born in 1882 to an internationally known and acclaimed university. Thank you guys for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review if you're enjoying the podcast. Uh, I'm working on some really exciting new things with this podcast. I'm going to share the first of it in next week's episode. 
hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.